0: Good health is a crown worn by the healthy that only the ill can see. Your health really is your wealth. Join us for the next hour as we explore disease and attaining and maintaining good health. This is Dischem Medical Monday, brought to you by Dischem, pharmacists who care. Welcome to Dischem Medical Monday. I'm your host, Dr. Dean Gerson. And we are very privileged to have an old friend of mine, Dr. Ronan van Eden, with us today. She is a medical oncologist, and she works at the Rosebank Medical Oncology Center and the Parkland Breast Care Center. And we are going to be speaking all things cancer with her chemotherapy, targeted treatments. And, uh, yeah, we look forward to the next hour. Ronan, thank you for joining us.
1: It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me on the show, Dean.
0: And just to clarify, your name is Ronwin without a B. How many times in your life have you been called Ronwin instead of Ronwin?
1: I think by you, probably a couple of times. But yeah, that's generally me correcting my first name. Um, but sometimes just making I just them aware. Because now
0: people, we're going to have people Googling you after this to come see you. So we'll just tell them to Google Fun Eden because maybe then that'll be easier than, than Ronwin. Okay. Um, we're just going to do a short live read. Make a difference during the COVID-19 pandemic with Dischem. Your Dischem benefit points can go towards supporting the independent solidarity fund set up by the president. Discam is matching rand for rand, all points and donations. And we'll kickstart it with an upfront 2 million rand. Money is raised will go towards those saving, saving lives of those people who are in need. Donate now by converting your Dischem points via your Dischem app or by the website. Together, we are stronger, together, and we can overcome this pandemic. This came pharmacists to Thank you again, Ronan, for joining us. Has the echo gone away? Can you hear me nicely?
1: Uh, yes, I can hear you nicely. Okay,
0: okay, fantastic. Uh, just to ask, uh, how has it been with cancer patients and, and your practice and the pandemic? We know that people who are on chemotherapy are immunocompromised. How has this impacted on, on your practice the past few months
1: of craziness? Um, So I think the big thing at the moment is the level of anxiety that we have amongst our cancer patients and the ones who are receiving chemotherapy. I'm sure everybody's heard all over the news, patients who have active cancer and those that are undergoing any type of oncology treatment are at higher risk during the COVID pandemic. And also, like, if they had to, you know, contract the virus, that they would be, a lot more severely ill than someone who doesn't have cancer. So I think patients are feeling generally very nervous at the moment. Um, What we have done at our centre, and I'm sure also at other oncology practices, is we just uh, take a lot of measures to ensure that our patients are safe. Um, We obviously implement all the hygiene practices. We also decrease the number of patients visiting the oncology centre and also decrease the amount of family members and other people, uh, patients, for chemo. I think what makes it possible don't then have someone sitting next to them while they're undergoing the chemo, which can also be a tough thing to have to do without support. Um, but it's generally safer for the patient, and the patients have uh, been well looked after.
0: Okay. Uh, I mean, yeah, it's, a, it's a really a scary time. But just to reiterate, You're not pushing off any chemotherapy or starting chemotherapy or cancers. I think a lot of people are probably scared to come to the doctor at the moment and are postponing therapies or getting checked out. So just to reiterate, you're not postponing anything or putting off anything?
1: Um, Not where it is uh, medically um, feasible. So obviously, I mean, the decision always needs to be made between the patient and the treating oncologist um, what's the most appropriate way to go forward, you know, when doing their chemotherapy treatments? We also understand that outside of COVID, we still have patients who have curative cancers. So cancers that we can treat and cure. And those patients are always a priority because, um, in the event that COVID eventually comes to an end, uh, those are the patients that will still uh, live healthily and have a long, good life. Um, If it's, for instance, patients that are receiving palliative treatments or not curative treatments, then um, it's up to the the treating oncologist to make sure that they're giving it in the appropriate setting, that they're giving it for the correct reasons um, and not treating patients unnecessarily or patients that don't need to be treated urgently. So I think we're prioritizing the patients who need to get curative treatments, those ones who need the chemotherapy to keep their cancers under control. So by no means are we stopping treatments just because of COVID-19, but we are making sure that we make responsible choices and treat patients who are appropriate to be treated.
0: Okay, fantastic. So just in your general practice, COVID aside, what what are the most common cancers that you see on a day-to-day basis?
1: Um, so by far, I would, um, especially for me, uh, working with um, the breast unit at Parkland Breast Care as well, um, I see a lot of breast cancer. That's by far the majority or the biggest population of patients that I see. I think what's important just to mention about the breast cancer patients. Is that um, it's not necessarily these days a disease of older women, um, but we're also seeing quite a climb and a rise in very young patients as well. I mean, I've got patients ranging from 26 years old, as young as that. Um, you know, um, and the most common age group would be between 30 and 50 years old, and that's just to make patients aware that you know that. Irrespective of your age, if you're a woman, you have a risk for developing breast cancer, and it's important to still do regular checks. I think also in the event of um, in the era of COVID-19 now, that a lot of patients are also delaying or postponing these screening appointments, and um, are scared to go for their mammograms and their checkups in case they contract COVID while they're doing these appointments. I think screening is still very important cuz most breast cancers if they caught early they are curative um and we don't want to miss these opportunities in in patients as well so i'm sure most of the screening and mammography units are taking extra precautions as well to make sure that patients are safe when they go for the screening um other cancers is um lung cancers colorectal cancers um and we also have a whole range of solid tumors um so and also some hematological malignancies as well, such as uh, lymphomas and leukemias as well.
0: This is Medical Monday brought to you with compliments of DISCAM, pharmacists who care. I'm your host, Dean Gerson. We are speaking to Dr. Ronan van Eelen, medical oncologist at the Rosebank Medical Oncology Centre and at Parkland Breast Care. Sorry if there's a little bit of a delay. I think uh, I might have to change of internet connections uh, myself due to COVID. We're doing this uh, interview from far, Both of us are in our own offices speaking on Skype. Sorry, just before the break, we we're talking about, we we're talking about breast cancer. And before you get to, uh, to all the other cancers that you see, I just wanted to ask you, what age should women be having uh, presented screenings? And you mentioned mammography or, or sonars. When you said, uh, women with cancer presenting younger. So when should they be having their screenings, and what should they be having done?
1: I think uh, screening has always been a controversial issue about you know what age to start screening at. Um, there's many types of different guidelines available for women for screening for breast cancer. Um, some uh, screening guidelines recommend to start screening from the age of forty, um, and to do annual screening. Some screening guidelines recommend uh, biannual screening as well. I think it's important to also take into account your family history. Um, if you've got a direct relative who's got a history of breast cancer, like your mom or an aunt, or something like that, in general, those patients should be screening at a younger age. Personally, I feel from the age of 40, and to do annual uh, screenings for breast cancer.
0: Okay, and those are mammograms and and uh, so sonars where necessary.
1: Correct, yeah. So um, usually uh, we use mammography for screening um, or we use a, a combination of different modalities, so um, mammography with an ultrasound as well. Um, in some instances in patients you have a very high risk or a significant family history we also sometimes suggest uh, breast MRI for screening, screening as well um, also depending on the history and the patient's anatomy and the density of their breasts and so forth
0: okay brilliant so uh, then you said past uh, breast cancer you were seeing some lung cancer some colorectal uh, what about in in uh, men what's the most common cancer that you see
1: um, so, in men, uh, we see prostate cancer as uh, the most common cancers. Uh, there are certain cancers that are also more common in men than in women. Um, colorectal cancer, we're also starting to see at a younger age in patients these days, and this is mainly attributed to lifestyle. Um, so, lack of exercise, uh, bad eating habits, um, eating um, little vegetables and grains and those kind of things. Um, but prostate by far, by far is the most common cancer that's diagnosed in men.
0: Okay, and what uh, what age? Should, what's the age, and when should men start screening for that?
1: So usually from the age of 50, and also um, similarly to women, if you've got a family history of uh, first degree relative we had prostate cancer, especially if it was diagnosed at a young age you could also start screening earlier for that.
0: Okay, and what's the screening involved uh, for prostate cancer? Uh,
1: so usually, so as oncologists, we uh, don't do the screening as such. The urologist um, will,
0: the urologist yeah,
1: will so, do it. Yeah, so the, basically the, the patient needs to discuss scre- screening with the urologist, correct?
0: Okay, so they'll do a blood test and maybe a rectal exam, which will be a whole nother show when we get uh, a whole oh, <laughs> yeah, and we'll get a. I think it's an important one, an important one, and uh, we'll get uh, your audiences on to discuss that. Okay, and um, all right. So that's uh, breast cancer and prostate cancer. Uh, what what else have you said? Colorectal cancers. What about your thyroid? Thyroid leukemias, lymphomas. Do you deal with those as well?
1: Ah, uh, yeah. So thyroid cancer, we say in general, um, is a fairly rareish cancer. And those also get managed not so much by medical oncology. Um, thyroid cancer usually involves a combination of surgery, and uh, I know that should be your um, – it's a usually a surgeon, so it will involve a surgery, okay. and also a nuclear medicine physician because they usually treat that with radioactive iodine. Um, so also for thyroid cancers, uh, medical oncology have a limited role Sure, chemotherapy,
0: there. There chemotherapy is are, not that
1: widely used. Yeah, so chemotherapy in general, we don't use for thyroid cancers because they don't respond very well to chemotherapy. Um, so in general, it would be management with the nuclear medicine physician. And in some cases, for thyroid cancer, depending if we pick up a specific mutation, we can also use targeted therapies for that as well.
0: Okay. All right. So maybe you can tell us a little about what chemotherapy actually is and, and how it works. It's a word that people... You know, thrown around. He's having chemo, she's having chemo, and uh, what exactly is uh, chemotherapy, and how does it work?
1: Yeah, so Anna, chemotherapy is quite a difficult topic always to discuss with patients. You know, we use the word chemotherapy, patients often um, have a difficult connotation towards chemotherapy. Um, this is usually because they know someone who had chemo or they've had an experience with a family member who's um, gone through chemotherapy and they're very fearful of the side effects and, um, you know, there's a lot of negativity that goes around with it. Chemotherapy by far currently is still one of the treatments that we use most routinely. Um, there's also a lot of other newer therapies these days, um, such as targeted therapies. those are um, sometimes oral types of therapies that are used for specific mutations or specific types of cancers and The other um, therapy that we have that's very new is immunotherapy as well and what immunotherapy does is basically it um, harnesses the body's own immune system or activates the body's own immune system so that the patient's immune system then fights the cancer. Chemotherapy though still has a very big role in treating um, in treating cancers. We use chemotherapy in different ways and to achieve different objectives when we're using chemo for for cancer treatments. Um, there's different ways we give it. Number one would be a curative treatment. So if, for instance, uh, we're giving chemotherapy when we know that it will definitely cure the patient. And we can give these in different ways, um, and the terms we use usually is called neoadjuvant chemotherapy, and that would be a chemotherapy that we give before surgery. So in certain cancers like uh, maybe gastric or stomach cancer, breast cancers, especially where we want to shrink down the tumor first um, to either uh, make it respond completely to the chemo or as small as possible so the surgeons can do a better operation, and usually this also Um, shows us whether the tumor is sensitive to chemotherapy or not, and a lot of these patients have very good results. The other way we can give chemo is something we call adjuvant chemo, and that's usually after a surgery, and that would also be more like a preventative type of chemotherapy so that after, say, a patient has had a a lumpectomy or a mastectomy, if we think it is appropriate, we'll give chemotherapy to prevent or decrease the risk of recurrence of a cancer, and to maybe mop up all the micro metastatic or small cancer cells that can still be um, in the body, um, and then we also do chemo uh, concurrently. We can do it concurrently with radiation, so that's when we do chemotherapy and radiation at the same time. And usually, this is smaller doses of chemotherapy we used as radiosensitizers, or to make the patient's uh, tumor more sensitive to radiation. And that also usually we do in when we're trying to cure cancer or before a surgery. And finally, we also have something we call palliative chemotherapy. And what palliative chemotherapy is uh, chemotherapy that's used when patients don't have curable disease, but it does sometimes help with um, symptoms or to give the patient a better quality of life. So in this instance, the uh, the oncologist would use a treatment that is got maybe low on toxicity or low on side effects, and they would use it to maybe um, shrink the tumour so that it gives the patient less pain, or um, gives the patient more energy, or combats the, the side effects of the cancer itself, like weight loss, uh, lack of energy, um, and loss of appetite, and those kind of things.
0: Okay, what is what is uh chemotherapy due to the actual cells? How does it stop them, their cancer cells from spreading? And how does it not, I know there's lots of side effects, how does it not attack the other cells in the body, or does it attack the other cells in the body?
1: So there is a wide range of different chemotherapy agents. So also um, the other thing also for patients to understand that Chemo isn't always like an antibiotic. We just have a broad spectrum one that kind of covers all the cancers, like you would have an antibiotic that covers all the. I think
0: also, I think also important to say that cancer is such a broad term that different cancers of different parts of the body have um, different um, have different mechanisms of how they come about and spreading. So just because you say someone's gone through got cancer doesn't mean that they're going to die. You get some cancers that are very mild and some which are very aggressive. It's a very broad word as well, just as I'm sure chemotherapy is.
1: Correct. And, I mean, also for cancer, it also depends on the stage of the cancer, which is diagnosed at. So always earlier cancers have a better outcome, have have better results, because those are usually curative than if we diagnose them at a later stage. And that's why we bring in screening and the importance of uh, self-checks, especially in ladies uh, doing breast examinations, because these are the type of cancers you want to catch early because they're curative. And because they come from different parts of the body, um, so does the chemotherapy differ for each and every single cancer? Um, there's many different types of chemotherapies that work in different ways. So some of them uh block DNA production of cancer cells, Um, some of them alkylate DNA. So um, usually the choice of chemotherapy would be according to the type of cancer and also to what clinical evidence and what data we have, a good uh, good level of evidence to show that that chemotherapy works for that specific type of cancer.
0: Based on what type of chemotherapy the patient's having, will they have different side effects or do different cancer Um, chemotherapy agents have...
1: Have different side effects. Yes, they will. So also it's important to remember that we don't always use cancer for every single type of, um, which we can maybe touch a little bit on later. We use some of the, there's some cancers where we don't even use chemotherapy at all, for instance, like uh, renal cell cancer, which is a type of kidney cancer. chemotherapy doesn't work for that uh, type of cancer. Also, we'd only use newer te- therapies such as targeted therapies or immunotherapies. So, cancer. Uh, I'm sorry, chemotherapy usually attacks fast dividing or fast growing cells. So that's why they um usually attack cancer cells because they usually divide quickly or they grow quickly. Um, the side effects then that you get from chemotherapy um, would be on the, the type of chemotherapy and also that it can attack um fast-growing cells within the body. So, for instance, like your hair, it's something that has a quick turnaround time. You, your hair grows very quickly. So that's why some chemotherapies cause hair loss or your hair falls out. Um, also, not all chemotherapies do that. So there's a lot of, um, you know, some patients say to me when I give chemo and their hair doesn't fall out, they they question whether the chemotherapy is working or not. Um, but um, it's like some chemos will cause hair loss and others won't. Um, also, for instance, nail, you can get uh, nail changes as well. Um, some chemotherapies also cause nausea, um, very rarely vomiting, because also what's important to know these days, besides for newer drugs, we also have newer supporting drugs such as anti or anti-nausea therapy that's very good, that combats or decreases the amount of nausea that you get with chemotherapy. So often patients can get chemotherapy with having little very little nausea or no nausea at all um, other side effects is um, because the cells or the lining in your mouth such are called the mucous membrane those are quick dividing cells so you can sometimes get mouth sores or ulcers um, this can also cause because um, it could also be in the lining of your gut so some people can get diarrhea during chemotherapy. Um, certain chemotherapies also, depending on which drugs you give, can also give something called a neuropathy where you can feel pins and needles on your fingers and toes. So really there's a really wide range of side effects that you can get. Um, a lot of them cause fatigue as well, but it's really um, specific. So according to which chemotherapy is given or which type of cancer and in which um, phase of the disease, whether it's early or if it's palliative chemo, you'll get different side effects. So it's important that if you have someone that's going to have chemotherapy, it's not just to assume that everybody has the same side effects and that everybody's going to be very ill. Some people get through chemotherapy with very little side effects, so it's important to discuss it with your oncologist, what's to be expected and also how you manage those side effects.
0: I suppose, yeah, I suppose everybody has a different journey through chemo and everybody's body responds differently to chemo. And I suppose Correct. also emotionally and mentally people respond different, differently to to chemotherapy, which yeah, makes it, it completely, yeah?
1: Yeah, I said what's not scientific, you know, from side effects of chemotherapy, um, if you have a patient that's more positive and that has a good, um, you know, attitude or a positive attitude towards their treatment and that they understand that the, You know, often chemotherapies is not something that goes on forever, especially if it's a curative treatment, that it's a course that sometimes takes three to six months, and if they've got a good positive attitude and, um, you know, discuss the side effects and discuss what to expect with their doctors, that they generally do do quite well, and they manage the side effects of the treatment better as well.
0: Okay, very good so uh, let's maybe take a short ad break and afterwards we can discuss non-chemotherapy cancer treatments that you mentioned earlier this is medical monday brought to you with compliments of discam pharmacists who care welcome back to discam medical monday i'm your host dr dean gerson we're speaking to dr Ronan Van Eeden who is a medical oncologist at the Roadplant Medical Oncology Centre and also at the Parklane Breast Care Centre. We've just spoken briefly about chemotherapy. What about cancers that don't uh, require chemotherapy? Are you considered lucky if you have one of those? And uh, are they still as dangerous, or is it just a different way of targeting the cancer?
1: Um, So I think as cancer therapies have been evolving over time and scientists have been discovering new things about cancers, we also saw so the treatment evolves. Um, essentially, what we can do now with specific cancers, so not all cancers, um, because they're not the same, we'll be able, we, we won't be able to use targeted therapies or immunotherapies for all types of cancers. But, for example, a lung cancer, certain types of lung cancers, for instance, what we would do is that we'd work together with the pathologist, uh, who's the person who... Analyzes your histology or your biopsy or your specimen that we get from, uh, the, as a diagnosis. And that's why it's also very important for us these days to have a very good specimen or a good biopsy or good representation of what the cancer is in each and every individual because we've got so many newer techniques where we can analyze the genome or the mutations within a cancer. How that is done is that usually the pathologist will take the specimen at the lab and they'll run a series of tests, first of all, to confirm what type of cancer it is. These tests are called immunohistochemical stains. And once they see what type of cancer it is, they can then go ahead to do something we call a mutational analysis. Uh, simply what that is is that they take a piece of the cancer and they can run it through a machine which then analyzes different DNA within or mutations within that cancer and it will pop up with a, a result that gives then the oncologist a target or uh, a new way to treat the cancer. So these targeted therapies or oral therapies in cancers, they will then um, attack that specific target or that specific mutation and the types of cancers we most commonly use targeted therapies for would be uh, lung cancer. Um, we've got lots of new therapies that have been registered in the country recently for this. Um, also kidney cancers, renal cell carcinomas. Um, and there's also other diseases that we use targeted therapies in. For instance, a certain type of breast cancer called 2 positive breast cancer. We use a drug called Herceptin, so we test for those targets. And also, continuously, it's evolving. Some patients also with, for instance, uh, genetic abnormalities such as a BRCA mutation or um, certain type of cancers like ovarian cancer, for instance, we have new targeted therapies that work well for that. So what we're always doing is that um, as oncologists, we are constantly learning about new targets. We're working hand-in-hand with our pathologists, and we usually do this in a team, what we call a multidisciplinary team, where the surgeons, the oncologists, the pathologists all sit together and discuss um, new cases and find ways that we can treat it in, in better ways. Um, with immunotherapy, generally what we do that um, immunotherapy is a very exciting and a fast-evolving field in cancer therapies. And generally we do specific tests also on the cancer to see if they are more likely to respond to immunotherapy or not. Um, and immunotherapy is generally an intravenous or a treatment that we give via drip. And also then we'll decide if that's the type of therapy we can use for the patient as well.
0: Okay. And what about side effects with these um, immunotherapy or targeted treatments? Is it as bad as traditional chemotherapy or does it depend on the patient and the drug?
1: So it's usually drug dependent. Um, what we find is that the side effects of the newer therapies is vastly different to the side effects of chemotherapy. With targeted therapies, because some of them bind so specifically to a mutation or an abnormality on the cancer, you won't have as many side effects. But we've also got some targeted therapies that bind to a lot of targets and then will give you a range of different side effects as well. Commonly with these that we see not so much in chemotherapy is skin rashes are more common. Um, changes on the palms and soles of the feet or redness or nail changes, um, also diarrhea and fatigue is more common with targeted therapies. Immunotherapies are very different because their side effects are attributed to Um, the immune system's overactivity in the body. So as I mentioned previously is that immunotherapy causes a hyperactivation of the patient's immune system. So you can get side effects of the immune system then attacking certain certain organs like, for instance, your thyroid um, or lungs or um, like kidneys or anything like that. And then you'll get something called immune-related side effects where it's not a side effect so much of the drug but more of your immune system that's caused a reaction within your body.
0: Okay, perfect. Thank you. I mean, it must be an amazing thing to be an oncologist in in today's uh, age that there's constant research and trials and drugs that are being um, tried out can you tell us about any new innovations that, or trials that are going on or giving hope to people, uh, new things that you're looking out for that you might be excited about?
1: Yeah, so as much as it's exciting and there's lots of new things every day, it's a lot to keep up with. I mean, we're constantly reading constantly, like every day, I, sometimes I feel like there's a, almost a new drug every single day. But that's fantastic because that means that there's a lot of hope for cancer patients. I think what's always difficult in South Africa, um, just some of the the difficulties that we have with using these newer drugs is that they're not always available as quickly or as readily as they are in other parts of the world. So often we get drugs registered in the country a lot later than what we would see in, say, America or Europe. Um, Also that these therapies are extremely, because they are so new, they have a lot of Besides for toxicity of the drugs, they have something we call financial toxicity as well because they they cost a lot of money. And often um, I think the, the difficult part about these new drugs is that as much as we want to use them for patients, we don't always get funding or we don't always have uh, patients who have the means to pay for such expensive treatments. So what we always advise is for patients to look out for clinical trials um, at different oncology centers in Johannesburg. Uh, they have trial centers or trial units. And what those uh, trial units do is that they bring, well, the drug companies will bring trials to the country of newer medications and newer drugs. And often you in the trials it's not patients being guinea pigs as such, but they'll get a standard treatment. So what we would treat with anyway all over the world plus or minus one of the newer drugs or uh, something that they are exper- or trying in a certain type of cancer. So always ask your doctor about clinical trials ask your doctor to look for trials that not only at the, at the center you're being treated at but also at other places because often um, we can find something for your type of cancer that will allow you to have access to new drugs where we wouldn't usually get them um, if we went through the usual routes like medical aid or or something like that. So a lot of uh, the drugs, a lot of the new research is going to different immunotherapy drugs, um, targeting different parts of the immune system um, in order to make the drugs more effective into also newer trials are going into different combinations of treatments. So giving immunotherapy with targeted therapies or giving immunotherapy with chemo. So lots of new combinations of treatments are also being, are being explored. Um, but it's very important always to to be aware that there are clinical trials running um at different centers in Johannesburg and always to be on the lookout for these as well
0: you are, okay I mean I guess people yeah i mean there's so much, so many drugs out there, and your center might not have the one that is best for you so how how do oncologists feel then about i mean obviously you you've got your patient, but would you send them out to a different centre which has a different trial or maybe overseas if something isn't available?
1: Absolutely. I mean, um, what we do as oncologists is that we talk to each other and if there is a possibility or chance that a patient could get a trial or access to a drug at another centre, we'd refer them to there. Um, So it's not necessarily a case of, you know, if there's a better opportunity for a patient to get a better treatment Somewhere else, then we'd always advise them of that, um, and obviously, um, always the we'll try and give the patient the best treatment and the best opportunity they have to give them the best chance of curing their cancer.
0: Okay. Funding, I know it's very controversial because often we see we see people on Facebook or social media advertising, you know, backer buddy campaigns. This fund isn't. Uh, this medicine isn't covered or this drug isn't covered or we need to target in this drug from overseas and um i think it's important to say that you i guess doctors don't have anything to do with what is covered and what is not covered because often i guess doctors are made you know to be the money hungry kind of bad people but uh obviously very very difficult expensive drugs and uh Funding by medical aids, are most cancers funded by medical aids, are they considered PMBs, prescribed minimum benefits? Will they pay for the drugs? And what are some of the struggles that you have as an oncologist with regards to funding of the medication?
1: So in general, um, most medical aids have something you call an oncology benefit. So when you've been diagnosed with cancer, the oncologist will register you with your medical aid for that specific benefit and each medical aid, it differs from scheme to scheme. They'll give you an allowance or uh, an amount of money that will cover uh, your cancer treatments. And that amount of money also, besides for the cancer treatments, also ca- covers the cost of your consultations with the oncologist. It covers the cost of your scans that need to be done in order for the oncologist to manage the and for your check to make sure your treatments are working. Also, um, the blood tests need to hold, um, be, that we use as surveillance during your, your chemotherapy or your targeted therapy treatment as well. So initially, it will sound like a lot of money that you have for these treatments, but when you put all the costs together, they add up, and often um, it's not really enough to cover um, what we would like to do. In general, chemotherapies, because they've been around for a long period of time then there's a lot of generics or, or clones of drugs, uh, those are generally uh, covered quite easily because they're not as expensive. But when you start talking about targeted therapies mm-hmm. and lethal therapies, then that becomes more of a challenge. A lot of medical aids uses an exclusion that they don't cover any of these either what they call targeted or biological therapies. And um, some medical schemes don't cover that at all. So they'll only pay for chemotherapy. So it becomes very, very difficult. And if they do pay for um, one of the newer immunotherapies, they might not pay the entire amount and the patients would still be liable then for a percentage of, of the cost. It makes it difficult because I think as an oncologist, sometimes you're aware of newer treatments or drugs that maybe would work better than chemo, but you're very, very tired or limited by what the funder or what the medical aid will pay for. Um, I think it's still important, though, to have a discussion with a patient and to tell them that what are all the options for their treatment, but what they what you can give, you know, according to funding and those kind of things. And also, for instance, for our patients who who have treatment in government or in state, um, because the budget there is so limited, uh, patients in general don't have any um, newer therapies. You'd only basically receive chemotherapy or one or two of the targeted therapies in government. So it makes it hard because it's really a challenge. You know, every day you see a patient and you want to do the best for them, but it's it becomes difficult when you've got to make or fight with medical aids constantly. You write a lot of letters, motivate, uh, and often we don't get it right for them to pay for the, the treatments. And, and that's why we do see so often people campaigning or fundraising and those kind of things because we, we generally struggle on a daily basis um, for the
0: yeah, it's, it's it's heartbreaking because often people think because they do pay a uh, medical aid or they're on the top plan that everything would be covered, but unfortunately, you know a lot of these things aren't covered, and especially then people who are not on medical aid and they go to government, I guess, um, the pay the waiting list is is extremely long, and not all cancer treatments are available, or covered, and it's it's terrible when you have someone who has the cancer that is treatable, but you actually can't do anything about it because of the resources that aren't available.
1: Yeah, I mean, I've worked in in the government setting as well, and obviously because um, the majority of our population, so I would say maybe... Um, 75% of our population is dependent on government and, and state funding for their treatments, whereas actually a smaller part of our population, about 20 to 25% is covered by medical aids. So also when you've got that big of a burden on the oncology um, setting in state is that often you have to prioritize patients or screen patients according to who would be the most Benefit, who would benefit the most from receiving treatment? So for instance, like, uh, seeing patients who have curative cancers, um, relatively quickly, whereas those that don't have curative cancers may be, uh, seeing them a little bit later on. But obviously we try and as, as much as we can to make sure that, that everybody can get some sort of treatment.
0: Okay, we're going to take a short ad break and then we're going to Into the last few minutes of our show. This is Medical Monday brought to you with compliments of Dyscam, pharmacists who care. Welcome back to Discam Medical Monday. I'm your host, Dr. Dean Gerson. We're speaking to Dr. Ronald van Eerden. She is a medical oncologist at the Rosebank Medical Oncology Center and Parkland Breast Care Center. Just to wrap up in the last five minutes of our show, first of all, the show's has flown past. I really enjoyed speaking to you. Uh, something quite difficult to speak about, palliative care or palliative therapy, as we know, unfortunately, some cancers are uh, far spread or um, when, when people are diagnosed with them, the prognosis isn't that good. How do you, how do you approach patients with very advanced uh, cancers and uh, what are some of the approaches you use?
1: I think the other difficult thing about cancer is it's, some cancers are very sneaky. So um, lots of patients won't present with any symptoms or even know that they're sick at all until it's it's already very advanced or really spread to other places. Um, so uh, quite a percentage of patients we see, so maybe about 25% of patients we see would be already metastatic, or, which means their cancers have spread already or be the type of patient where the cancers are very locally advanced or in an area where we then can't do curative operations or anything like that. Um, I think the important part of palliation or having a cancer that's not curable um, but manageable is to always ascertain what the goals of the treatment is and what we're trying to achieve by treating the cancer I think the things that rank of importance in patients who have a cancer that can't be cured, number one, is quality of life. Um, obviously, because and we can never tell how long those patients have to live, but quality of life is important because living with the cancer, you want to be as well as you can be um, in order for you to do all what you want to do, in order to spend time with your family, to enjoy the time that you have without feeling sick all the time. Um, And also, you know, end-of-life discussions as in when we get to the point where we can't do anything anymore, um, what do we do then? So I think um, it's important to remember that even though cancers are not curative, there's lots of treatments we can do that can control cancers for long periods of time. Um, And as I mentioned earlier, for some palliative chemos or palliative treatments, what they can do is that they can decrease symptoms of the cancer so we'll always discuss with the patient uh, what therapies we can give that won't be too toxic, or won't have too many side effects, that will achieve this goal of controlling the cancer while still giving the patient good quality, good quality of life. Um, when we feel it's not appropriate to give uh, treatments for patients with uh, not curative cancers, is patients that come in that are very ill or are, um, something we call a poor performance status, meaning that they can't do much during the day or they sleep a lot. Usually for those patients, we would just then to do best supportive care, which is supporting them in terms of nutritional means, in terms of symptom control with pain meds or anti-nauseas or whatever it is that they need. We often work closely with a palliative care team. Um, also, what's important to know is that some medical aids do have a benefit called, in, um, some of them call it an advanced illness benefit or palliative benefit, which actually um, then allows for these patients to have another set of, or an extra um, benefit or, or coverage for things like home care or nursing at home um, and those kind of things so that uh, we don't also have the patient being constantly in hospital. I think important discussions to have with your family, um, which are always difficult discussions, are uh, what you would like at the end of your life. Where would you like to be? If you'd like to be at home, if you'd like to be at hospice or at a care facility, um, or if you'd like to be at hospital in the time. And I think it's very important to always ascertain what the patient wants themselves, not necessarily the family, but what the patient's desires are. And also that when you've got an advanced cancer If you get hospice or palliative care team involved very early on into the diagnosis, it's not a matter of then writing you off and saying that there's nothing you can do, but having access to hospice and palliative care early on in the disease before you're very sick also allows you to have other good benefits such as um, counselling, as well for you and your family, and also um, access to uh, things like pain meds, um, and so that when the time comes, everybody knows exactly what to to do. Um, the research shows that if you involve palliation or hospice teams early into the disease, um, that patients often do a lot a lot better in that way as well.
0: Okay, thank you so much, Dr. Runnion, from Ireland for joining us uh, speaking about oncology. The podcast will be available on highfm.com. Thank you to our listeners for tuning in, and uh, thank you again, Dr. Pandian, for the, having an important conversation with us. We really appreciate you giving us our time. Stay safe, and we'll see you next week.